We're going to open by looking at <clears throat> the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we'll, we'll come back to this in just a moment. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I will delight in your statutes. Amen. Please be seated. Well, tonight we are, we're finishing chapter 2 of the Confession of Faith, and we've walked through the attributes of God in the first couple of paragraphs of chapter 2, and, and tonight we um, consider the, the third paragraph of that confession, and um, it ends by talking about uh, the Trinity, that God is one in three, and three in one, and, And it ends here logically because all of the attributes that we have talked about with reference to God himself apply to every person of the Trinity. And so that's what we're going to focus on this evening. Virtually every false religion denies the essential doctrine of the Trinity, if you think about it. Um, The Jehovah's Witnesses, when they come and knock on your door, as they do from time to time, deny... Um, that God is a triune God. They, they uh, affirm a doctrine that God is a unity. He is not a trinity. And when we try to convince them of the triunity of God, they accuse us of worshiping three separate deities, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Mormons reject the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They exclude Him uh, from the Godhead. So every false religion denies the essential doctrine of God's tri-unity. But we know that the Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith. The Christian faith is a Trinitarian faith. When, When we confess, think about it, when we confess the Apostles' Creed from time to time, we confess a Trinitarian faith. We believe in the Father. We believe in the Son. We believe in the Spirit. To deny, then, the Trinity is to deny the faith. It is to deny the very means of our reconciliation to the Father. This is an essential element. And so Pastor Danny and I, in our prayers and in our preaching, we always try to draw your attention back to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to emphasize the unity of God and the distinction within the persons. This is essential to faithful Christian living. Christian worship. Christian worship worships and reverences every person of the Trinity as one God. Your communion, when you commune with God, you are communing with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. You cannot have one without the three. And you cannot have the three without the one. This is the foundation of all Christian belief. And so what we see tonight in just a couple of points is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created you to commune with Him for the glory of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. So the very beginning point for us is that uh, there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one God. As you go to the larger catechism, questions 8, 9, 10, and 11 are really, really good and helpful. And, and tonight, when we end, we're actually going to look at the 11th one, because when you have those, uh, when you have the Mormons, when they come to your home and you talk to them, or you talk to a Muslim, or you talk um, to a Jehovah's Witness, it would be really helpful to you, especially to look at the larger catechism, question 11. We're going to look at it briefly tonight, because it helps you to understand where we get this doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. Why do we believe this? But we begin with the fact that God is one God. God is a unity. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 8 says, Are there more gods than one? And the answer is, there is but one only, the living and true God. So as you're talking maybe to your Jehovah's Witness friend, one of the passages of Scripture you might look at is Deuteronomy 6.4. And this was such an important verse uh, in the life of Israel because even from a young child, maybe the first memory verse you would learn was called the Shema. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this verse was so important because it said God is both personal, He is our God, and He is one God. There is but one. We don't worship anymore but one. And so what uh, the confession affirms for us is that God is, the three persons are one in their substance. Now, we begin to get into some difficult things to understand. Understand this. There is not a verse that we can go to, per se, in the Bible that says, here is how you are to understand the Trinity. We, we learn who the Trinity is by reading our Bibles from cover to cover. But what's happened is, in church history, certain men have come along and they have challenged the doctrine of the Trinity. One of those was a man by the name of Marcion. You don't have to worry about how to spell that. But Marcion uh, um, asserted that in the Old Testament, there was a different God than the God of the New Testament. So the Bible references two gods. So the early church fathers were responding to attacks like this, and one in particular, his name was Tertullian. Don't worry about spelling that one either. Tertullian, in order to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, he had to create words. And one of those was the word substance. Tertullian, he lived from 160 to 220 AD, came up with the word substance and person to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, to put it into human words. He said this, the three are one in quality, substance and power, but distinct in sequence, aspect and manifestation. In other words, Christians are not tri-theists. We don't worship three different gods. We worship the one God, not three. One of the ways maybe to think about that is when you think of animals, animals are of one essence. 
They are created differently than us. They're different types of beings. They don't love and experience joy and hope the way that humanity does. And so in the same way, a, a human, we are of a different essence than, uh, than an animal. We have a body and a soul. In the same way, God is of a different essence as well. And the three persons of the Trinity are of one essence or substance. This helps us to distinguish the Godhead as a distinct substance or essence from all other life. Within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one substance. They share the same attributes. So when we talk about the fact that God is all-knowing, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all all all-knowing. They are all all all-powerful, as the confession affirms. They have one power. So that we understand that the Father creates, the Son creates, and the Spirit creates in that work. The Father redeems, and the Son redeems, and the Spirit redeems. They are a unity. They have one will. The Father's desire, the Father's love, and the Father's hatred is the same as the love of the Son and of the Spirit. They are not divided, and they cannot be divided from one another. The Father exists in the Son and in the Spirit. The Son exists in the Father and in the Spirit. And the Spirit exists in the Father and in the Son. They are all eternal, existing with and in one another. To quote Dr. Ryan McGraw, he says, the three persons, think about this now, the three persons do not and cannot act in succession. You think about runners running uh, in a race perhaps and one crosses and another crosses and then the other crosses. We cannot divide the Trinity in that way. When the Father acts, the Son is acting and the Spirit is acting. They always act simultaneously and distinctly due to the fact that they are one essence yet distinguished by their personal properties. Instead of working like three movements in a symphony, the persons of the Godhead are active simultaneously in the same action, but in three different respects. Let's give you an example of what we mean. We just looked at the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ, didn't we? Did you see the persons of the Trinity all present in the incarnation there? What did we see? The Father, as the heavens, in, in Mark's language, the, the, the heavens are rent open. And the voice of the Father is there affirming the Son in His incarnation. The Son is joined to the humanity. The second person of the Trinity is joined to the humanity. And the Spirit is active in making that union of the humanity. Turn also to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. You should know this by heart. As we fulfill the Great Commission, what are we doing? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, now notice, baptizing them, not in the names, plural, but in the one name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 
And so as we put all this together then, as we think of this, your communion with God, when you are sitting in your room and you're reading your Bible, you are communing with all of the persons of the Holy Trinity. You are created by God, for God, and through God. To think of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit as separate gods is a denial of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So the first thing that we notice then is that God is a unity. He cannot be separated. The, the persons of the Trinity, they cannot be separated from one another. So as even in the incarnation, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. So there's a sense in which the whole Trinity is dwelling in the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot be divided but it was appropriate to the second person to fulfill the act of giving himself as a sacrifice. So let's notice then secondly that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are different persons or distinct persons. And remember, again, we're borrowing from this language that Tertullian came up with in the second century and third century to defend the doctrine of the Trinity, referring to him as one substance and different persons. Um, so at times, we come up with different um, analogies. Some would say that you can think of the Trinity as uh, the different phases of water, but that really is not what the Trinity is because it denies the unity. It is, it's not helpful usually to come up with analogies for the Trinity simply to accept the doctrine as it is presented in Scripture. So let's think of the Father, the Son, and Spirit as different persons. In Westminster Larger Catechism, question 9, we're asked the question, how many persons are there in the Godhead? How many persons are there in the Godhead? And the answer is this, there be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. And so as we think about the Father then, we can think about the different personal properties, the properties that are appropriate to the Father, the properties appropriate to the Son, and the properties appropriate to the Spirit. We learn from the confession that the Father is of none. So it is appropriate to the Father that He doesn't proceed from anyone. He has no beginning or end. And the Scriptures don't define Him as having been born or proceeding from anything. Look with me at John chapter 1. This is one of those central passages of Scripture when we think about the nature of the Father and the Son. We're going to look together at John chapter 1, verse 14 to begin with, and then we'll skip over and read verse 18. John, in describing the nature of the incarnation of Christ, says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And so one of the things that John is pointing out to us is it isn't the Father who descended. It isn't the person of the Father who descended. 
it was appropriate to the person of the Son to descend and to become incarnate. In verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. So you see, John, in his way, is attempting to explain to us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the nature of the incarnate Christ. So he calls him at once the Son, the Word, and God, the God who is at the Father's side. So it is not appropriate to the Father then to to descend and to become incarnate. It was appropriate to the person of the Son. He does not proceed from anyone. With reference to the Son, He is eternally begotten of the Father. Look with me at Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. This is the the great psalm uh, standing here as an introduction to the whole book of the Psalms. And in Psalm 2, verse 7 is a very important verse for us as we think about the nature of Christ, the second person. He says there, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is repeated in Hebrews, you probably remember. You are my son, first of all. Notice that in reference to Christ, you are my son. With reference to his being, he always has been the son in reference to the father, proceeding from the father. The image of the father being put upon him. Today I have begotten you in reference to his incarnation. So there's a sense in which he has eternally been the son of the father and in his incarnation became begotten of the Father. And then lastly, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and from the Son. And you'll notice in, as we look over at John chapter 15, verse 26, um, this famous passage about when the Lord is, is speaking to His disciples, He's reminding them of the help that He's going to give to them. This is where He said, I am the, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he said to them in verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. And so Jesus is affirming for us that the Spirit, when He is sent, He is sent from the Father and He is sent from the Son. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Son proceeds from the Father, the Spirit from the Father and the Son whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. So what is the role of the Holy Spirit in our redemption? What does He do in all of creation? He declares the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is His objective. This is His purpose in your life, is to glorify, to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Having a Bible drill tonight. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul defending the gospel by grace through faith, 
and the work of the Spirit here, he says, and because you are sons, the doctrine of adoption, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Who has sent the Spirit? Well, the Godhead, but especially here, the Father. Why do we know that it's the Father? He has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so as we work our way through these passages of Scripture, they begin to give us a picture of the whole operation of the Trinity. The Son proceeds from the Father. He is eternally begotten of the Father so that there has never been a moment in eternity when the Son has not been the Son of the Father. And the Spirit is sent to us by the Father and by the Son. In Westminster Larger Catechism, question 10, we read, what are the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead? It is proper to the Father to beget the Son and to the Son to be begotten of the Father and to the Holy Ghost to proceed from the Father and the Son from all eternity. So one of the challenges of of arguing for the doctrine of the Trinity is that we don't find the word Trinity in the Bible. You, you know that. There's, there's not a place where we find that. This is, again, an attempt to define what the Scriptures say, to put parameters around it. What, what is God? Who is God? And remember, He is both a what and a who. He is both different from us, but He is also personal. How do, we, how do we define this, this being who is God? And this is where I want to take you to Westminster Larger Catechism question number 11. Because it's, it's helpful. It's helpful to us in defending the doctrine of the Trinity. How do, we, how do we argue with this? How do we prove this? The answer is we look at the Scriptures and it says, how does it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father. How do I, if I have a, a Jehovah's Witness who comes over to my house, what are some of the things that I might say to them? Well, you might say, does, do the Scriptures, when we read the Bible, does it teach us to worship the Son? Does it teach us to worship the Spirit? Are we to worship the Spirit and the Son the way that we worship the Father? The answer is Yes. Are they given the same attributes? Yes. And so let's look at just a few of these. First of all, I want you to notice that the names of God, the names of God are applied to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. You remember that great scene in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6? We've looked at it uh, regularly recently. In the book of Isaiah, there's that moment where Isaiah is caught up to the throne room of God where he sees his, his robes are filling the temple and there are the six-winged seraph on either side of the throne. It's this powerful, powerful moment. And, and Isaiah is overcome with his sense of his own guilt. But we read there in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3. Isaiah 6, verse 3. You can jot these down if, if you want to. And one, this is of the angels, called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And then in verse 5, Isaiah responds, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 8, and this is the crucial one, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, and you know this one probably, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, that's right, here I am, send me. But do you see what's happening? You have this reference, God is referencing himself and saying, who will go for us? And the name of God, the Lord of hosts then, is applied to all the members of the Godhead. And in John chapter 12, verse 41, we read of the same event. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Do you know who he's referencing there in John 12? John is saying that Isaiah saw the word, the incarnate Christ, and the glory of God then is applied to the Son. And then in Acts chapter 28, you see we're stringing these together, sort of like a daisy chain. We're putting all of this together. So we see in Isaiah 6, the name of God, the Lord of hosts, that is the Lord of the angels, the one who commands His holy armies. And then in John 12, this is applied to the Son. And then in Acts 28, verse 25, we read, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed. After Paul had made one statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. This is applied to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. And so one of the reasons that we argue for uh, the existence of the Trinity, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are equal, is because the names of God are applied to all three. And we read Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. We baptize in the one name, the one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we could go back and and look at, uh, at Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the Aaronic blessing. God put His name upon the people in the blessing. This is the picture of baptism. God is putting His name upon His people and it is the one name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the names. Not just the name. Not just the authority of God. It's also the attributes. It's also the attributes of God that are applied to each of the persons. And so... What about eternity? Are each of the members of the, of the Trinity eternal? Well, we read in John 1, 1, what? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. 
The Word was with God and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. Christ is eternal. He, he shares the attribute of eternality with the Father. In John chapter 2, verses 24 to 25, we read, But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them. Now listen, what? Because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, so it is, he has this, this omniscience of God is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you think about the story where the men brought their friends and they dug a patch out of the roof and they lowered their paralytic friend down before Jesus. And it says there in Mark's gospel, Jesus saw their faith. Why is that important? Because it's teaching us that Jesus has the attribute of omniscience. Not in his humanity, in his deity. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything. Even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So here we have this attribute of omniscience also applied to the spirit. These are just some examples of how we see the attributes of God applied to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. They are all-knowing. They are all-powerful. They are eternal. What about the works of God? This one's a simple one. We could go back to Genesis chapter 1, couldn't we? And we could see that all the persons of the Trinity are there. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, you know that the, the name for God, the very first one that is given to us, is the name, the Hebrew word, Elohim. Why is that significant? Because the singular version of the, the generic name for God is El. But when we make it Elohim, it is a plural noun. And this comes uh, to the forefront in Genesis 1.26. When God made man and woman in his image, it says, and he shall be in our image, doesn't it? Now this is... If you have Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons come over to your house, this will throw them for a loop. I remember when we were living on Blackstock Road, we had a couple come to our home and we, started, we just started going through Genesis chapter 1 and they said, time out. <laughs> we're going to let the elder come and talk to you here. And it's just Genesis 1. What do you do with Elohim? It's plural. What do you do with let us make man in our image? It comes through right there. Our is plural, image is singular. The three in one. Let's just look just at a couple of other places. Uh, the works of God. What are the works of God? Creation and providence. Creation and governing the earth. Well, do we see that Christ was engaged in the creation of the world? Yes, we do. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were made and made and are created. And who is who is the him there? It's Christ. All things were created by him in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. Well, what about the Holy Spirit? Do we, is there a passage of Scripture that might show us that the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of the world? Well, yeah. How about Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we see then the names of God are applied to all three. The attributes eternality, the omniscience, and the um, omnipresence are, are, are applied to all three. The works are applied to all three, creation and providence. And then lastly, we are commanded to worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as proper to God only. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14. I'm sorry, I put the wrong verse down. You know, the, um, the love, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all is the benediction. So the grace of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit comes to each one of us. Now, we remember then that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit created you for His own glory, through and for the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, as we conclude, I just want to give you a poetic verse from a man by the name of Gregory Nazianzen, and you, you may have never heard that name before. We're going back to some old names. But he was, um, he was one of the early defenders and apologists, they were called, of the nature of the triune God. And he wrote this wonderful little passage reminding us of how we ought to worship them. He says this, No sooner do I conceive of the One than I am illumined by the splendor of the Three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the One. When I think of any one of the Three, I think of Him as the Whole. And my eyes are filled and the greater part of what I am thinking escapes me. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. If you take anything away from this, I think, how does this affect me just in my day-to-day devotions? Well, it reminds me, as you consider the Son, as you read through the Gospels and, and your mind is called to the beauty of Christ and what He has accomplished to you, Have the discipline also to think of of what is the Father doing, having sent the Son and exhibiting through the Son His love for me. What is the Spirit doing? He He has anointed the Son in His messianic mission. He is enabling Him to carry out this mission, to resist the temptations of the devil, to... um, to, to conquer the devil, to cast out demons, to heal men. You see, as you think of the Spirit, then your mind ought to go to the Father and the, Son, and the Son. As you think of the Father, your mind comes to the Son and to the Spirit. You discipline your mind then in your worship and in your devotion to consider the three. That's what Gregory Nazianzen is saying. So that at the end of the day, what happens? Your mind is overwhelmed 
It is overwhelmed. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, as we gather to think of these things, we, we confess that it is more than our minds can take in. It is more than we can comprehend. And yet we know that it is true. You are one God existing in three persons. Three persons existing in one God. And we praise You. We praise You, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for Your work of creation, that You are as one eternal and unchanging. And we praise You for Your communion with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.